Psychology Nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Allison Jane Martin-Gano, the new host of Psychology Stuff, and I'm here with a very special guest. Regular listeners will know him as the founding host of Psychology and Stuff, and UWGB students will know him as the Dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. It's Dr. Ryan Martin. How are you doing, Ryan? I am doing really well. Thanks so much for having me back. I actually, I have to tell you, I listened this morning uh, to the episode that came out just a few days ago where we passed things on to you. And I was reminded uh, all of the good, good reasons why, or all the reasons why that was the right decision. So I'm super, super excited uh, that you are hosting. I'm super excited to be back on the show so soon. And um, it was, it was fun this morning listening to that episode and being reminded of uh, all the all the values you and I share about the the need for psycho psychological science to get out there in a way that is, um, this word sounds bad, but palatable to <laughs> uh, to the public, um, and useful to the public. And so it was fun. It was fun to listen to that again. Oh, I I haven't actually listened to the whole thing back again. Uh, I listened to about the first half and decided I hated my voice so much that <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you did this for so long. Um, but no, I then that's why I invested in this good microphone that I have yeah. here now in front of me. Uh, hopefully I won't hate my voice as much from today's episode. Yeah. But, you know, I have a feeling that everybody dislikes uh, how their voice sounds um, when they when they hear it or, <laughs> or it takes a long time to get used to it. So because I will admit when I was listening to it, I was like, is that really what I sound like? Is that really what's going on? Yeah, that's how other people see me or hear yeah. me, I guess. Yeah, in this case. Yeah. Anyways, thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, so uh, how does it feel to be on the other side of the mic? Did I do the intro text all right? Yes, you nailed the intro text. I was uh, I was really, uh, I admit it was fun. You're going to laugh because I was utterly unprepared for this, right? It took me like 20 minutes to get my microphone out and, and all <laughs> that. But part of what I was thinking when I did that is it's sort of fun to be on this side of it, to not really have to do a lot of prep work going into it and then uh, and, and just be ready. But then again, that lack of prep work meant that I wasn't ready. So, oh, well. That, well I'll forgive you this one time, uh, <laughs> but I'm not sure if I'll ask you back again if you don't really pull it together. Yeah, no, I, I got to get it together right now. <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm focused and I'm ready. Let's do this. All right. So I have a, uh, just a, a couple of questions. So first, you've been Dean now for, for a couple of months. How are you settling in? How's the new job? Uh, it's going okay. I, uh, I like the job quite a bit. Um, there's a lot of good, exciting things happening at the university that I'm excited to be a part of. Uh, it is um, it is not without challenges as far as like there's there's a, a lot I have to learn. I think this is actually I don't know if I've told you this before off, off mic or not, but I've, I've said a couple of times this is the biggest work transition I've ever had as far as how different it is from my previous job. Um, me, you know, when I was in this was probably similar for you, like when you're in graduate school, you're kind of doing a version of what you end up doing when you get your first academic job. You know, it's like, yeah, I was teaching. And so I, I started teaching more and I started doing research more and fewer classes, but I'd done those things in this job. I really am discovering every day. Well, this is something I didn't know <laughs> how to do. And now I have to figure it out. So, um, right. but yeah, but overall, it's really fun. There's a ton to learn, and uh, I get to work with a lot of good people across the across the college and across the university. So, very, very happy in that way. Excellent. Well, I'm glad it's it's gone well. We miss you over here in psychology. Um, I agree. I appreciate that. I miss you all as well. <laughs> so, uh, before we dive into our topic uh, today, uh, I wanted you to ask you one fun question. Mm -hmm. um, about your favorite creature comfort that you miss when you're away from home. And so this question is sparked because this past weekend I was away on a writing retreat and I was staying in this lovely Airbnb, uh, but it didn't have a heated towel rail. And I actually oh. think that's quite common in America, but I'm used to having my towels warm when I get out of the shower. Yeah. I realize I sound quite spoiled now as I'm saying this, yeah. this out loud. Uh, but anyway, I was wondering what the thing is that you miss when you spend a night away from home. That, okay, that is an interesting question. Um, so first of all, I didn't know heated towel racks exist. I'm just gonna <laughs> float that real quick. And now I'm actually trying to figure out the mechanics of it as far as like, is it battery powered or is it like- right. Oh, wow. Or? Yeah, so they yeah. really are that rare in America. Yeah, so yeah. In, in most of 
at least in England where I'm from, and maybe it's because it's like miserable and rainy all the time. <laughs> um, the they're like wired into the mains and so they're sort of in the wall and there are these heated metal bars that come out of the wall that you put your towels over uh, but when I first moved to the states I like these weren't a thing so I bought one that's like portable but you just put, oh. um, put your towels on it nice okay you know what cool. I mean? well I think the idea is that it makes them dry so if you live in a oh. humid area you get dry towels but it also has the added bonus that when you get out of the shower you get this warm snuggly towel excellent yeah, just a side note, I, um, I we are currently having to have our bathroom flooded uh, back in, in December. And yet, <laughs> despite that, we are just now getting around to, to to upgrading it, which means I'm sharing a bathroom with my kids. And my towel, I think it's just the nature of their bathroom, but also how many people are using that bathroom right now. My towel is never dry um, because that room is so humid. There's people showering it much more than normal, and so I, all of this sounds like the kind of thing that I. You I need a heated towel rail. Now yeah. I know what to get you for Christmas. Really, <laughs> this you. is this is God. what you need in your life. For the record, I really hope my bathroom is done by Christmas. But, <laughs> uh, um, so, okay, back to your question. Um, you know, it, I don't know if this answer will is 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 adequate, but. I have a specific chair and a specific routine that I start honestly most days doing, which is I wake up before everybody else in my family by sometimes a good hour, a good hour and a half. I, I go downstairs and I sit in a very specific chair and I drink my coffee. Um, and that is probably the thing that I miss most when I'm away from home um, mm. is just that sort of because it's it's, you know, 30 minutes to an hour or whatever of me doing my own thing without any sort of external pressures or anyone asking me for anything or needing <laughs> to do anything else. And so um, it, it's sometimes I'm doing work. Sometimes I'm scrolling through social media. Um, sometimes I'm just watching TV. Um, but it's just a nicer reading or whatever. It's just a nice way to start up my day. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's half the habit by the sounds of it and half the chair. It, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, that is definitely right. Actually, it's funny. Just recently I was sitting in the chair and I was starting to think, I don't know if this chair is as comfortable as it used to be. And then I started to panic a little bit thinking, <laughs> so, so I think it is more the habit than the chair, but yeah. Oh no. Yeah. If you start hating the chair, then you have to get yourself a new one. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, so I'm thrilled to have you on the show today, Ryan. Uh, not just because, you know, you're you're okay, um, <laughs> but also because you're an expert on the topic of catharsis, uh, which is one of those sticky topics, I think, that um, gets brought up a lot by my students in class. And so I'm excited to hear uh, the science behind it from you. Uh, so before we go uh, diving deeply, uh, maybe you could just define catharsis for us for the audience. Yeah, so I, I guess I'd start by saying, you know, I think there's two kind of two ways of thinking about catharsis. And I mean, the, the, the concept itself, as far as psychology, is really rooted in uh, Sigmund Freud's work. Now, people have been talking about catharsis since well before that, right? Aristotle sort of talked about catharsis. So it's, it's a much older concept than that. But if we think about it in terms of psychology, it really goes back to, to Sigmund Freud's work. And um, in Freud's case, I mean, he was really talking about repressed emotions and the idea that you need to um, essentially express those uh, repressed emotions or they were going to cause you some harm or some suffering and so on. I mean, he, he kind of likened human beings to uh, like he had this like, hydraulic model for how emotions worked. Like where these basically the metaphor is that we are these pressure cookers and that you needed to release stuff or else you would just sort of explode or it would cause that sort of suffering. So if you if you take it out of the context of anger and just think about emotions in general, catharsis is about taking time to like to to have a good cry, to vent in an angry way, um, to just experience those uh, those those feelings. Um, now, my because my area of, of research is is anger, um, I think of catharsis primarily through that anger and aggressive lens. So in this case, catharsis really can look a couple different ways. It can be going and talking to someone and just sort of venting and unloading 
all of your frustrations and feelings about a, a topic on them. It could be sort of yelling and screaming into the void. Um, what people sometimes refer to as uh, like primal scream therapy or something like that. Um, but it can also be like the punching of a pillow or the punching of a punching bag or or something like that. Um, even uh, uh, exercise is sometimes um, called uh, a thought of as potentially being cathartic uh, as a way of expressing emotions in this. Uh, the idea is I can express my anger in this uh, aggressive but safe, quote unquote, way um, where no one is actually getting hurt. Yeah, thanks for, for explaining that. Um, so uh, to jump into uh, sort of the debate around catharsis, so you've called it the catharsis myth. Uh, could you elaborate on why you describe it as a myth? <laughs> yeah, and it's because all of the research we have, truly all of it, uh, has essentially pointed to the fact that catharsis doesn't work for alleviating uh, anger. Wow. It, 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 yeah, I mean, you're really hard pressed to find any data at all that says that um, uh, that catharsis helps when you're dealing with uh, anger or aggression. And it's interesting because uh, you can think of the, the controversy around it in two ways. One is there's no controversy in the sense that the, the data is clear, right? I mean, there's no real question about it um, from that perspective. And I can walk through a couple of specifics here as, as we go through it. Um, but so from that perspective, it's, we've known this for a very long time, right? In fact, one of the things that happens when I, when I talk about catharsis on social media is people point out how old some of the studies I'm talking about are and say, well, that studies from 60 years ago. And, and my mm -hmm. response to them is right. We've known for 60 years that this doesn't work, right? And we, we haven't continued to redo all of those studies over and over and over again, because there's no reason to believe it, it does work. Um, and so, uh, I mean, this is Bandura, uh, you know, was was basically saying, hey, we need to stop uh, talking about catharsis. The data is here. The data is clear. Catharsis doesn't work. Um, let's stop promoting this. The, the, the weird part about it, though, is that even though that data is clear, it has not stopped therapists from prescribing it. Uh, it hasn't stopped um, the sort of the general public from believing that it works and believing it's the way to deal with anger. It hasn't stopped teachers from building like kind of almost like the equivalent of rage rooms at schools for kids who have anger problems. It hasn't stopped um, uh, parents from telling their kids to go punch a pillow. It, it hasn't stopped any of that. Um, it hasn't stopped rage rooms from cropping up all over uh, the country, um, for, you know, uh, in in all of those ways, so it's there is this sort of weird, real weird disconnect between what the public thinks works and uh, how um, uh, and the data we have on it. Wow, yeah, and, and I just sort of want to reflect on that that you know in psychology it's really rare to have a topic where all of the evidence is very yeah. clearly on one. Right. That's so incredibly rare. I mean, in my work in empathy, it's it's debated. You know, it could be this, it could be that, but. No, that, yeah. that's uh, pretty, pretty shocking. You know, it's funny because every now and then, not every, I mean, so every time I talk about catharsis on social media, I get pushback, right, from from mm -hmm. someone uh, who says that. And sometimes the, the pushback is from clinicians who have said, no, I've seen evidence that it works or, or whatever. Um, and they'll, so I actually, when that happens, I will go back to the research and, and do like a, a another sort of review of the peer reviewed research that's come out since the last time I talked about it. And I, I just, nothing, nothing comes up uh, to, to really essentially <laughs> say, yes, this works. Um, it's always anecdotal. It's always a, uh, Oh, my clients benefit from it or, um, or, or some variation of that. And this is, it, it, I, I'm always prepared for, for, for nuance and for looking at, things a little more deeply but I, I do think like what people will say is well what about in population x right so sometimes people will say what about in kids who are on the spectrum could it could it work there uh or what about people who've experienced trauma 
could it work there? And I, I mean, I, I, I'm of two minds on this. One is in those cases, I don't think we have like data that is looked at those specific groups. Um, so there's there's that. I mean, we only know what we know. The the other mind side of me though is I don't know why we would assume that those groups would would be totally fundamentally different on this on this uh, on these outcomes. I just don't know what the rationale would be. So not opposed to doing that research, but I would argue that until we have a good reason to um, uh, to think there'd be a difference, we should probably still not be uh, providing that or prescribing that. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Sort of the the default uh, the assumption here is is more, why would that group be any different? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering, you've, you've mentioned a lot of these this research and these studies. Could you walk us through a few key studies that have provided evidence against the effectiveness of catharsis? Yeah, absolutely. So probably um, the the researcher out there who really has done the most on this, um, it, modern researcher, is a guy named Dr. Brad Bushman, and he's at uh, the Ohio State University. He is a super super nice guy. He's actually been a guest on the podcast a few times. If people want to go back, there's a there's an episode uh, featuring him um, that I did a few years ago. Um, so it's another good place to, to listen. Actually, to be fair, I did that for a different podcast, but then I brought it over mm-hmm. here too. So, um, but it, it, so he's, he's done a lot of this research, but you know, it, it actually goes back, like I said, to even, um, before Bandera and you have to forgive me some of the, the, uh, I, I can share it with you, Alison and Jane afterwards, some of the citations, if people want to look up some of this research. But I mean, all of the research or, or most of the research uh, looks pretty similar. It's you you bring someone into the lab, you provoke them in some way to get them, you know, good and mad. And then half of them uh, get to punch a punching bag or do something cathartic. And the other half have to do some sort of other task, right? Sometimes it's a boring task. Sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it's... Um, I don't know, writing, whatever. And then after that, you have them, um, you know, you, you do some sort of measure of aggression. Um, and again, they've they've done these things. A lot of times that measure of aggression has to do with how they were provoked. So one good example that they'll use is you'll, you'll, you'll go in and you'll write an essay and you'll give that essay to another part of the uh, participant in the experiment who isn't really a participant that person will like give you a really, really harsh critique of, of the essay you wrote and tell you what an idiot you are and how stupid you are, right? And then later you get the opportunity to get revenge. And so that'll be the form of uh, aggression uh, that they use. And what they find is um, that the people who had the opportunity to go punch a punching bag or do something cathartic in between there are always more aggressive after the fact. Mm-hmm. They always punish the people uh, more severely. And catharsis would say the opposite. Catharsis would say, no, you had a chance to release that anger, release that frustration. You should um, not necessarily feel that urge to, to um, aggress against the person who wronged you. So catharsis in this case doesn't necessarily work. They've even done studies, and this is probably the the it's study by Brad Bushman. I don't remember the year right now, but this is probably the the most thorough of these. And it's actually he he looked to see um, whether or not uh, there there could be a placebo effect here. And so before, as part of this, they had a bunch of different groups, but as part of this, participants were given an article, fake article that said catharsis worked, or they were given a fake article that said catharsis didn't work. And the, the idea was, well, well, we'll see, like, if people think catharsis works, if they think that this should maybe in that case, then they'll actually decrease their, their aggression after the fact. And they didn't. And in fact, he, he described it as a reverse placebo effect, meaning that group was still angrier than the other group that engaged in catharsis, but didn't get the article. So, wow. yeah, it just... There, there, there just isn't data to support the idea that it works. And in fact, typically we see that it, it, it makes things worse. Mm, wow. Yeah. So I, 
I think I know your answer to my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> so in, in Green Bay, there's a, a rage room, which uh, on its website says, uh, get ready to rage. Uh, we provide a safe place to destroy TVs, electronics, dishes, bottles, and other household goods. Use the weapons and tools we provide to destroy our items and release your anger and stress in an exciting, positive environment. And I, I guess I just want to I know what your take is on that. Yeah. Okay. So I have a, I have a lot of takes on this. One is, um, I mean, they all boil down to to this. I hate this place, right? Um, and and not just this one, but all of them. Um, so let me give you a few reasons why. Um, first of all, I also think on their website, at least last time I was there, their website said they were available for for gender reveal parties, and I was. <laughs> utterly perplexed by what that could mean, what that looks like. So I don't know. Uh, so there's that. And, and I'm also just, by the way, not a big fan of gender reveal parties. So uh, that we'll just put that in the category of why <laughs> I hate this place. Um, Taking some strong opinions here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. These are my hot, hot takes. <laughs> I, I also, but I think ultimately, you know, I've talked to, I've actually talked to some people who've gone to places like this. And one of the, one of the caveats here they, they've shared, um, one is uh, they've told me, look, I, I don't really go to work out my anger. I go because it's fun, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's not like I really think, oh, hey, this is how I, how I am dealing with uh, my anger. And this is good for me. It's more, and this is something I like to do because it's entertaining and it's sort of a goofy, I mean, it's, and, you know, I mean, I guess I could argue that's the same reason every now and then I'll go to a casino. It's like, I don't really think I'm going to win, but it's entertaining to play for a little while. And if that's what you're into, that's what you're doing it for, then I guess that's fine. Right. Um, uh, I think that's that's probably OK. Um, I mean, I think that honestly, though, you know, the, the description you gave, like they're they're selling a bill of goods right they're they're selling lies about the idea that this is good for you it's not we know it's not and so that claim is is really uh dishonest um i can keep going i have other reasons i hate it um so <laughs> one of them is i had this weird thing so i, I taught a course um there, there's a, a sort of a funny not funny it's a sad juxtaposition here where um I was teaching a course on anger and violence. And I, as part of that, I took my students to um, uh, a local domestic violence shelter. And we were talking about domestic violence and we were meeting with people who worked there. And, um, and, and they, we asked, I said, you know, what do you, what do you need? Like, what are some resources? Like if we wanted to do like a fundraiser or something like that to raise funds, what, what would you need? And her response was, you know, a lot of times uh, victims of domestic violence need, um, they, they're, they're starting their life over someplace new. And so they need a lot of basic household stuff like dishes and glasses and things like that. And, and so I heard this and then I left that meeting and I went and I actually was recording a podcast about catharsis where I was thinking of rage rooms and the breaking of a lot of the things that I've got this group talking about needing. And I, it, it was very heartbreaking for me. And, and it, it just sort of felt like, God, what a, what a weird world we live in where we've got people who are desperate for those things and then other people who pay to break them. Yeah. And that was just a really troubling uh, feeling for me or recognition for me. Yeah, no, and, and you're reminding me that when I was checking out their website uh, in, in preparation for this this episode, uh, they they do take donations at the Rage Room. Okay. Uh, so uh, maybe if you're if you're listening and you're thinking of donating some household goods, uh, maybe uh, maybe consider another. Uh, yeah. Location. Yeah. Pick your pick your donation uh, location wisely. I I also think it's worth noting that okay now I'm a big fan of the pun, uh, but. Okay, so they're called rage rooms, but mm -hmm. I just want everyone to take a moment to recognize that both break room and rec room were available. Those are <laughs> far, far better names. And so the fact that they went with rage room is really an indication of how not creative they are. Yeah, yeah, no, I like I like both of those options more. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah, so... All right, so I, I do want to ask you then, so if someone's hitting up a rage room regularly, uh, what do you think the causes of of that are? What's short term, long term? Give us yeah. a scoop. 
Yeah, so short-term consequences are that they're not alleviating their anger. Chances are they are leaving angrier than when they went in. Actually, I had a student who, who met with me because he and a friend went at the end of uh, the semester, right after his friend got some really bad grades, and they went to a rage room together. And he, he told me, he said, you know, it was really awkward, really, really awkward. My friend was... Um, kind of lost control in there and then on the way home like there was just a sense of like discomfort and uh yeah and so um so in the short room that's what happens right your your anger doesn't go away it probably gets worse um you end up uh, part of what happens is that you know the things we know work for anger are combinations of like reprocessing some of the the reappraising some of the things that that made you mad in the first place, um, thinking through solutions to the problems that led to that anger. All of those things are things that work. Um, but instead, what you're doing in your rage room is you're keeping all of those thoughts and feelings right up at the surface. Like you're not you're not processing anything, you're not appraising anything, you're just keeping it all right there. And so it does, it plays no role or doesn't do anything in helping you uh, decrease those angry feelings. Um, and so chances are that's what happens. Um, that said, um, and we can we kind of come back to this later. There are people who will tell you in the short term, I feel better. And so mm -hmm. let's come back to that in a second and talk about in the long term. Uh, what we see is, um, you know, I, I had a soccer coach when I was young who used to say, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent meaning how you practice something is how you will do it later on in life. And so he was saying this in the context of soccer, that if you learn to do things incorrectly, then that's just the way you're going to learn. In the context of this, um, what's happening is um, your uh, anger, um, you're learning some maladaptive approaches to dealing with anger. And so you're more likely to be aggressive later on when uh, when provoked. Yeah. You know, I think that's the second time you told me of, of a quote from your soccer coach, uh, yeah. that that's really stuck with me. This was a very insightful person. But, yeah. It's probably a different coach. Uh, but I had, a, I had a lot of them when I was growing up and they were all great. So uh, maybe wow. not all great, but yeah, I need to know what the other one was. Uh, uh the other one was, uh, oh, I'm, I'm going to butcher this by not saying it as eloquently as you did. Um, but something like, um, You've got to make mistakes because if you're not making mistakes, uh, then you're not, uh, you've got to yes. fall down because if you're not falling down, you're yeah. not um, trying to yes. try new things. Yep. That is definitely true. Uh, that was, that was actually both my soccer coach and my ski coach who made that case a lot of times. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very, very I good. see. Maybe this is why I've missed really great, um, really great sayings. I, I've never really done a formally coached sport in my life. Yeah. I have these, these great bits of wisdom thrown okay. out. You can learn a lot through sports, yeah. both good and bad, I think. Yeah. Practice makes permanent. Like Yes. Yeah. All right. So um, one last uh, thing I want to uh, sort of uh, talk about here is, um, and this is before we get to, to some questions from the audience, uh, is... Why, why, if with all this evidence that, that's so conclusive on one side, why is this idea of catharsis and its effectiveness so sticky? Why does it continue to be perpetuated? Do you have any insights into that? Yeah, I think um, I can really point to, to two things that I think are true. And, and the first is, it is actually really simple and actually does come down to the fact that people will tell me, but it feels good, right? Um, that that ends up driving a lot of that. And it's like, how can it be bad for me? It works for me. It's essentially what people will say. And I, I get that. That's a really hard thing to, um, to come to the other side of. And so I think that's part of what's driving it. The other thing, and I think this is unique to, or somewhat unique to clinical and counseling psychology, is that we really can't um, over estimate the influence that Sigmund Freud has had on our field. Um, it is, it's still so, so omnipresent in the fields of clinical and counseling and other, that kind of applied to culture and not just those areas, certainly, certainly others as well. But I mean, I think, you know, we can point to a lot of things that Freud argued for or said, or cases that were made that I think we've been able to debunk 
but have not left popular culture. So the existence of the, the um, uh, you know, I mean, the, the concept of repression or the existence of the unconscious and things like that, that we either haven't been able to prove uh, exist or that we've actually disproven at times, but they're still just so, so present in the culture. Um, and I think this is one of those. Uh, this this idea is just so very present in, in the culture that it, you know, there are very few, um, uh, I guess, very few people out there saying, no, it doesn't work. But there's lots of people saying, yes, it does. Um, and I think it's it drives popular culture. I also think it drives the field uh, in, all, in all sorts of ways that are, um, that just haven't been like kind of healthy. So that's my best guess. Um, but I yeah, also, I'm happy to blame Freud. We can blame yeah, Freud. That works. Yeah. But I, I also think it speaks to the importance of what you, you're doing here and also on, on psych today. I mean, it's when, when the public doesn't fully understand, um, the, the science behind psychology, I think there are bad outcomes that come from it. And, you know, I, I, I've shared with you, I've, I've actually had, um, like principals and uh, high school teachers and elementary school teachers reach out to me for this exact reason, because it's like, Hey, I've got teachers asking to essentially create like a little rage room in their school. Not, not in the way we've been talking about, but like a safe space for kids to go punch stuff. Is that good for them? And, you know, so it's just, if, if, if we continue to promote that idea, bad things happen. Right. And so we just have to debunk those myths when we can. Right. And uh, and I, it makes me think about the importance of sort of actively debunking. So um, and that's what I'm really hoping this episode will, will, will be doing um, is is not just saying um, coming out with a new piece of research, but really making it clear what that what that uh, debunks and the, the myths. Right. Make. Yep. All right. So let's move on to a, a new section. Uh, so in this episode, I, I've decided to add a new section called Ask the Expert. Ooh. And uh, depending on how this goes, Ryan, I, I might make this a recurring feature. So no pressure. And so I asked for people to send me their questions about the catharsis myth uh, that they'd like you to answer uh, on air. And I got a, a fair few questions sent in. So I'm going to okay. play them for you in a few moments. Uh, but to give you a sort of sneak peek, it seems that for many people, catharsis is something they really value and sometimes seek out in their lives. Uh, and so a lot of these listeners ask you to explain why their choice of cathartic activity might be problematic or simply ask why it feels so darn good, which you right. were mentioning earlier. Uh, so you up for ask, answering these questions? I can do my best. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, here goes the first one. Hello, Dr. Martin. After going through a breakup, I threw all my ex's things away and found it very cathartic. Why would something that helped me feel better be considered scientifically ineffective? I'm going to start by saying, um, in the case of anger, I'm going to answer this in two ways. First, I'm going to start with, in the case of anger, um, there are lots of things that we could do that feel good, that aren't necessarily good for us, right? So, um, you know what, I will admit that sometimes when I'm feeling stressed or angry, a thing that feels good is uh, a alcoholic drink, right? Um, other people would say that, you know, smoking is a thing that feels good when they're stressed or angry. Um, overeating falls in that category. Other heavy drugs fall into that category. Um, th there's there are lots of things that we do that that might feel good in a moment, but that doesn't make them good for us. And so that I think is ultimately what's going on here. Um, that yeah, I mean, at the core of anger is that it's it, in fact in some ways you could define anger as an emotional desire to lash out. Right when you get angry, part of what you want to do is lash out at the person or people or thing that provoked you. Um, and that's natural. That's part of the, the instinct there. Much like when you get scared, the the desire is to, to flee, right? To avoid the thing you're scared of. Again, that is also not necessarily good for you um, uh, to do that. And so just because our instinct says that this is a thing we should do doesn't necessarily make it good for us. Um, and the reason the idea that it feels good doesn't necessarily justify doing it, especially when we know that there are all these long, long-term consequences associated with doing it. All right, thanks for that answer. So we're gonna move on to, to question number two here. 
Hi, Dr. Martin. My name is Chad, and I'm a senior at UWGB. Um, I was wondering if all forms of catharsis are equally flawed, uh, because as a parent, I've done the thing where I've told my child to write down his feelings when he was in a very agitated state. Um, would this be a form of catharsis? And if so, is it just as useless as something like hitting a pillow? Uh, excellent. So that is a great, great question, because one of the things we haven't necessarily covered as we've been talking about this is um, that there, that I mean, catharsis can look a variety of ways. And I think that um, I, I might argue that what he's describing isn't catharsis in that traditional sense. To me, when it comes to um, sort of verbal catharsis, right? So the idea that you, um, you know, want to go in and maybe not necessarily the case uh, with this person's child, but um, but when you want to um, uh, like go into talk to a friend and just unload, right, or rant, I think that the, the the devil is in the details there because if you're ranting to rant, meaning I'm just unloading all the stuff, that might not be as productive. But if you're doing, and it sounded like this is a, a version of what this person is doing, is if you're trying to get the person to sort of process how they're feeling, why they're feeling a particular way, um, where that feeling comes from, that's about developing emotional intelligence. That's about understanding where this anger experience is coming from. And ultimately, it's that's part of the, the, the process of coming up with a solution. And so I would argue that if that's your intent, that's not the same to me as as catharsis in those other ways. I mean, I, I think a very healthy thing to do if you're feeling angry is to sit down and write down, write about it. Um, especially if the goal is, I mean, you know, you can write, I'm mad and hear all the reasons why I'm mad and the whole world sucks and I hate it. Or you can say, I'm feeling this way and here's what's where those feelings might be coming from. And here's, you know, in processing that feeling in a different way, that to me is a really healthy way uh, of dealing with your emotions. All right, great. Well, thanks for explaining the the devil in the details there. I think that mm -hmm. that's super important. Uh, I have another question here. Hi, Dr. Martin. I'm Sarah, and I ran cross country all throughout high school. Several of my teammates love to talk about how running was their outlet for getting out anger. If catharsis doesn't work, then why do many people use running as a coping mechanism? Yeah. Okay. So exercise is the messiest of all things when it comes to emotional regulation. And so we're, we're really going to get into it now. Um, and I say this as now I've never run cross country, but I am an avid, avid, avid runner. It's my, my favorite, one of my favorite things to do uh, in, in the whole world. Um, and I, and I frankly believe in its value, not just because it works for me, um, but because it's really, I believe, because the research tells us it's a really, really valuable tool when it comes to managing emotions. So here's where the devil is in the details again. First of all, we know that when it comes to healthy emotional well-being, exercise is great for you. Um, there, there's research out there that says it actually outperforms medication in the treatment of depression, um, that it should essentially be prescribed consistently by clinicians uh, when people are dealing with emotional uh, emotional problems, diagnosable or not. It should be part of the, the treatment package. Um, so really, really good for people in that way. Here's where things are complicated. If you use it, not just as sort of a standard part of your day-to-day -day life, but if you use it as a way of dealing with your emotions in the moment, it has a, a tendency to make things worse. Meaning if I say, God, I'm really mad right now, I'm going to go for a run. That's actually more in line with catharsis and not terribly good for you. It has the same impact as uh, going and punching a punching bag or something like that. Um, because what you actually oftentimes need in those angry moments is to do the opposite. You need to um, decrease your uh, cardiovascular activation and your neurological activation. Um, and so it's not unlike, I mean, we do the same thing, right? When people are having a panic attack, you don't tell them to go for a run. That's not the way to deal with it. You tell them to take deep breaths. You tell them to sort of slow down their sympathetic nervous system. And so um, that's that kind of messy, nuanced relationship between exercise and, uh, and catharsis. There is a term that I had at the beginning of the show that I have since 
lost and it's driving me crazy that I can't remember what it is. Um, it's going to uh, excitation transfer. Uh, that's what it is. And so excitation transfer is basically the um, the finding that there that the, even sort of the worst case scenario here is that sometimes uh, we take that cardiovascular activation um, that a person is feeling as a result of their exercise, and it ends up being interpreted by them as anger or fear or something else. And so it actually makes that those, it intensifies those emotional reactions instead of decreasing them. All right. So complex when it comes to, yeah. to exercise, but what I'm hearing from you and correct me I, if I'm wrong, is that if it's used as part of your daily routine, it's really great. Uh, but as a uh, in the moment reaction to, yeah. to anger, not, not, not advisable. Yep. And there's actually some research came out a few, uh, I don't know, probably about eight years ago that found that um, heart attacks are uh, tied to people who uh, basically if you exercise as a way of dealing with your anger and you go for runs and, and engage in exercise because you're angry as a way of dealing with it, you increase your risk of having a heart attack by something like three times. Or something oh, wow. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. So Okay. So definitely not advisable. Yeah. Right. Be careful. That's what I'm getting at. All right, this uh, next question talks about a, a dipping strategy, uh, maybe one that uh, is or isn't catharsis. We'll get your opinion on that. Hi, Dr. Martin. This is Haley, and I am a psychology student at UWGB. Often when I am sad or angry, I will um, lay down in like a dark, quiet place, usually on a bed or couch, and maybe take a nap for an hour or two. This really helps me to relax and calm down, kind of forget about what happened or take my mind off things. Would you consider this a form of catharsis and why? Yeah, I would not consider that a form of catharsis, but I do, I can absolutely see how it's it's valuable. And I think um, I, there's a couple of different principles, psychological principles that come in there. Um, the first is the the decreased activation, right? So you're even if this isn't the intent, you're decreasing your heart rate, you're slowing your down down your breathing, and so forth. So there's that. Uh, another piece of it might be uh, some distraction. Um, one of the things we know is that if you're when you are angry or sad, um, you, you you tend to focus your thoughts on the thing you're angry or sad about, and so laying down or finding a way to distract yourself from that can also be really, uh, really helpful that way. Um, and so those are a couple things that, that, that might be going on. The other thing, and this is, it's related to the decreased activation, but just, we know, I mean, emotions are actually relatively brief, uh, when it comes to how long they last. And so, um, just decreasing them or increasing the time between the provocation uh, through like that that process um, can can end up alleviating it that they they tend to decrease in intensity over time. All right, thanks. Uh, so we're we're up to our last question here. You're doing well so far, Ryan. <laughs> uh, let's you. see if this one stumps you. Hey, Dr. Martin. My name is Colton, and I have a love for digital artistry and media. In entertainment media, a typical narrative scenario is to create an antagonist, show their malevolence, and then frame a protagonist to save the day. This is the main idea behind most superhero movies and numerous video games. Ultimately, viewers get to vent the anger they gain for the antagonist through a climax event in the story, with some even feeling a sense of euphoria or exclaiming verbally when the villain gets what they deserve. If catharsis is a myth, how come these narratives are so satisfying to watch and to complete? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I think that it, I, I'm going to start by saying that I think that um, it, some of what I've been talking about so far probably doesn't apply quite as directly to, to what we're describing here. And so there's probably some research out there that I'm, I'm less familiar with that might connect better to that sort of narrative. Um, I, I do think it's worth noting, though, that I think the part that is the same is that, that yeah, catharsis can feel satisfying. I mean, I think that's one of the things we've we've been been uh, highlighting is that it sometimes feels good to break stuff. I actually, <laughs> it's a weird example, but I, I went to the, I had to take like a load of stuff to the dump recently. We were cleaning out our garage and I, and um, uh, actually the, the, the bathroom work I mentioned before um, we're, we're, and so I had to take stuff to the dump. And while I was there, I just started trying to throw it as far into the dump as I possibly could. And 
it felt really satisfying. I even said to my wife at one point, like, here, try this, just throw this off and whatever. And it felt really satisfying to just, to just do that. Right. And so, I mean, I do think that there is something instinctual and innate about liking to do that, um, that, that drives that satisfaction. Um, and I think that's rooted in what he's describing too, right. The, 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 the bad guy getting theirs, uh, ends up feeling really, um, uh, feeling good uh, to see that. Um, and so I, I get that. Again, it really comes back to just because something feels satisfying doesn't necessarily make it good for us, um, especially something that we would do um, as our kind of go-to approach. I mean, I think to me, that's sort of the, the take home from this is I don't think there's anything wrong with going and punching a punching bag every now and then. I don't think there's anything wrong with exercising when you're angry every now and then, or even in my case, having a drink when you're angry every now and then. But if that becomes your go-to approach uh, for dealing with, with anger or dealing with emotions, then I do think it becomes problematic. Then I do think it becomes dangerous because there's a whole bunch of other things you could be doing that are going to have fewer long-term consequences. Yeah. All right. So I, I I finished the the asking expert section. I think you did really well. So so yes. thanks for that, Ryan. Victor. <laughs> um, and I just want to uh, get your uh, your thoughts and advice at the end here on some different ways to manage emotions. So if not mm -hmm. catharsis, what alternative strategies would you recommend? Yeah. So real quick, I just wanted to say to the people who asked questions, those were great, great questions. I really, really appreciated them. So thank you very much for that. And I like this segment. Good idea. Um, it's good to capture this stuff. Um, you know, I think, so I had this really sad moment once on social media where I did a, I did a thing on exercise and some of the dangers there. And a person responded with, um, if exercise doesn't work, then I'm out of options. And it, it made me really sad because, um, I think first of all, this is someone who's obviously, or it seems like was really struggling, but also, um, I think because there are so many options out there, there really are a lot of different things people can do when they are feeling angry. Um, there are different ways even to prevent those angry feelings through planning and strategizing. And so um, to give you just like the briefest of rundowns, you know, when it comes to anger, um, we get mad when we're provoked and, but not just when we're provoked, but when there is, we're in a particular mood at the time we are provoked and then how we interpret that prov provocation matters. And then we get mad, right? And so, uh, you know, if I'm driving down the road and somebody cuts me off and uh, I decide, well, that person did that on purpose and they, I'm going to get them back or something like that. Well, there's other ways that I can interpret that. Um, I could assume that maybe it was an accident. Maybe they just didn't see me and thank goodness I'm safe, right? It's still bad, but it's not bad in the same way as if they did it on purpose. Um, so the answer to what can we do is there's, there's essentially infinite ways to express our anger. There are infinite ways to appraise um, uh, negative experiences that happen to us. Um, we can take that time and back to the caller before who, who would, not the caller, but the, the question before um, about, you know, processing emotions. We can, we can process where those feelings are coming from and, um, and try and better understand uh, how we're, how we're handling it, how we're interpreting things. Um, and then when it comes to just like, what can I do in a particular moment when I'm angry? Um, I can distract myself. I can problem solve. Um, I can try and reappraise, uh, the thing that, um, uh, has, uh, made me angry, quote unquote. I can write poetry, I can do art, I can listen to music, I can play the guitar, I can do essentially infinite things as a way of um, dealing with that, that negative mood state. All right, thanks for, for that long, long list of various <laughs> different creative pursuits you could do instead. Yes. Uh, there is one thing I wanna ask you about specifically though. So we've mm -hmm. all heard that age old advice to count to 10 when you're mm -hmm. mad. Is that something you'd support? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, emotions dissipate relatively quickly, um, especially when we remove the the the, the thing, right? The, the provocation. Um, and so just taking that, um, what, what I sometimes refer to as finding that pause, um, being able to count to 10, to take some deep breaths, to um, just 
to walk away even momentarily, um, to find something funny in the circumstance. All of those things are ways of de-escalating uh, that cardiovascular activation and um, and relaxing um, and uh, and decreasing the anger. Um, so absolutely, that's a, an approach that people use and that works. Excellent. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that that works. I'm not giving people bad advice when, <laughs> I, when I say that. Yeah. Uh, so we're coming close to our time here. And I just want to give a huge thank you for returning to Psych and Stuff and answering questions from my listeners. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, just before you go, can I ask you what your favorite method of dealing with anger is? Yeah, so I am in my heart of hearts a problem solver. And so whenever I find myself getting angry, I assume that means on some level that I've got a problem. Uh, sometimes it's a real obvious problem, like, hey, I keep trying to print this thing and my printer won't work. I need to fix it. Um, sometimes it's a deeper problem where I think, okay, so at the core of this is me not feeling heard or me being misunderstood or something like that. Um, regardless, I, 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 dedicate some time and energy to figuring out how to solve whatever that problem is. Um, to me, the what this means is that it ends up being really empowering. Um, I think for a lot of people, and for me in particular, when I'm angry um, at the at a, a core of that is me feeling sort of disempowered or feeling a little bit helpless in a circumstance. And so being able to take some power back there can be really valuable. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm feeling what you're saying right now, real deep. Um, <laughs> anger is one of my least favorite emotions to experience for exactly those reasons, because I feel like I can't control it. it. It's one that leads me to to feel un unempowered. So, yeah. so I, like, I like that very much as a as a strategy to, to lean on. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for, for coming in today, Ryan. Uh, and uh, it's been so wonderful to have you back. And I hope we continue to have you back in future. Uh, thanks so much for having me. This has been um, an absolute treat. I love talking about this and uh, talking about really just sort of freeing to be able to give up the hosting responsibilities <laughs> and just sit back and answer questions. That was fun. So thank oh, you. I'm so glad. And you'll let me you'll you'll see me do my last hosting responsibility here as we say goodbye. You bet. So Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salik, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Belisi. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Ryan Martin. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all of our shows. I'm your host, Allison Jane Martin-Gano. Keep being amazing.